Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spectacular people welcome to this 459th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i'm your host diane and this is kelly kelly on this episode we're going back to jail oh no what did you do now well we were in saint augustine for halloween Uh (laughs) uh-oh this is a location that has been suggested to us over the past few years and we finally are getting around to it it's been suggested by tammy burrows and kelsey meyer that's brushy mountain state penitentiary and Keisha recently went there so heck kelly why wouldn't we go there too <laughs> anyway we'll be talking about the history of this place where thousands of men lost their lives and the ghosts that have been left behind but before we get into that we want to welcome into the spectacular crew ak tony with an i we have two Shans, one who spells his name A-U and the other E-A. Ravenwood Art Gallery, Amber, Marilee, with two E's at the end, Jennifer, and a special warm welcome to Tommy Flowers. <laughs> We're so glad that Chelsea finally allowed you to join the rest of the crew. <laughs> and to our strange little family. Welcome to the crew, everyone. And now this moment, Naughty. Most of us are familiar with the running of the bulls, or Enciero de Pamplona, a tradition in Spain that originated when bulls were brought from the fields where they were bred into the bull ring, located in the city. During the run, youths would jump into the bull's path to attempt to outrun the creatures as a display of bravado. Well, a favorite city of many decided to take a twist on this tradition. Every July, New Orleanians congregate in the traditional colors of Spain to host their own version of a bull run. During this event, the New Orleans Roller Derby girls chase runners on their rollerblades armed with plastic bats. Runners line up dressed in white with a bit of red included in their attire. The NOLA tradition began in 2007 with just 200 runners and 14 derby girls. Today, nearly 14,000 runners and the Big Easy Roller Girls and Guest Bulls numbering around 400 participate every July. The bulls attack runners with foam-filled plastic bat horns attached to their helmets. From the sounds of it, the festivities are just as much fun for the spectators as the participants. But one thing is for sure, 
a running of the bulls with people posing as the bulls, and getting to whack the runners with plastic bats certainly is odd. And now, This Month in History. In the month of November, on the 5th in 1911, aviator Calbraith Perry Rogers completed the first transcontinental flight across America. On September 17th, Rogers took off from Sheepshead Bay, New York, to begin the 3,417-mile journey. Just the prior spring, he had become interested in aviation after visiting his cousin John. The cousin was studying at the Wright Company factory and attending flight school in Dayton, Ohio. Rogers took over 90 minutes of flying lessons from Orville Wright and later, along with his cousin, purchased a Wright Flyer airplane. When Rogers took his official flight examination, he became the 49th aviator licensed to fly by the Federation Aeronautique Internationale. In October of 1910, William Randolph Hearst had offered a prize of $50,000 to the first person to fly coast-to-coast in less than 30 days. Rogers' plan was to fly above railroad tracks to navigate his journey from New York to California. There was a train of three cars to join him on his journey, consisting of a sleeper car, dining car, and a car of spare airplane parts for any repairs needed along the way. Calbraith hired the Wright Brothers technician, Charlie Taylor, to ride on the train so he could assist with the plane's maintenance and repairs when needed. During the trip, there was often significant damage to the aircraft due to more than 15 crashes that occurred. Although he missed the prize money award by arriving 19 days after his 30-day cutoff, Rogers successfully landed at Tournament Park in Pasadena, California, to a crowd of 20,000 excited spectators. Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary is located in Petros, Tennessee. This was an old coal mining town that only boasts a population of 600 people. The jail is basically its claim to fame, and this location is quite famous for being haunted. There were thousands of deaths here, and something dark seems to be on the property. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Kelly, did you know there was such a thing as leasing convicts? For what? Yard work? Or (laughs) like, I don't know. I mean, if there is such a thing, I'd love it. Come out and do our yard for us. On the cheap? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you can get a good deal on them. After the Civil War, Southern states were broke, of course. They came up with a means to make the government money while saving money. They rented out their convicts, and Tennessee was one of the states to do that. Companies would pay the state for the convict labor, and the state didn't need to bother to build prisons or maintain them. 
Because if you're leasing them out, you got to take care of them too. Oh, so gotcha. you're you're giving us money, and you got to house them and feed them. <laughs> so the state's like cha-ching, great idea. Coal companies made use of this practice, and they built their own stockades near the mines. The coal mining industry was expanding quickly in Tennessee. Petrus was one of those towns that was near a coal vein, and a coal mining company set up operations here along with a company town. Like many companies, this one took advantage of the coal miners by charging inflated prices for rent, clothing, and food. By the end of a month, coal miners had little to show for their work. So they joined together and planned strikes, and they made sure to plan them during the winter, great idea, when coal demand was really high. The mine workers demanded to be paid in cash rather than script, because, you know, they would just give them these scripts, so you don't even know what that's worth, and you can't use it anywhere else and to be able to choose their own checkwaymen so they wouldn't get cheated. You can imagine if the company is the one saying, we're going to have our guys weigh the coal out that you just got and then report how much is there. They're going to undercut it. (laughs) Not a good idea. The companies embrace the convict lease program because they would now have a compliant workforce. They can't go on strike. The Tennessee Coal Mining Company in Anderson County started leasing prisoners in 1891. Obviously, the coal miners weren't keen on having criminals take their jobs. They started numerous campaigns to disrupt mining operations. But the mining companies didn't budge because they were getting a steady stream of labor as more and more young men, particularly black men, were arrested for petty crimes and given long prison terms. This was a cash cow for the state. The state may have rethought this practice if it had known that it would lead to one of the most significant events in labor history, the Coal Creek War. Yeah, so you can imagine they get these people for maybe a little petty crime, like somebody stole a little something, not even an armed robbery, and they're giving them sentences that would equate to doing an armed robbery or something because they're like, oh, we can sell them out for years and years and years if we have them in jail for years and years. Yep, definitely taking advantage. And obviously, as we're talking about the timing here, this is about 30 years after the Civil War, but you still, black men are just going to be segregated against and and that kind of thing. So a lot of them were the prisoners that they were using. This conflict took place on the eastern fringe of the Cumberland Mountains in the towns of Bryceville and Coal Creek. The Bryceville mine had been shut down after miners wouldn't sign a contract and was reopened on July 5, 1891, with the goal of using convict labor. The miners' homes were torn down and a stockade erected. On July 14th, 300 armed miners surrounded the Bryceville stockade and disarmed the guards without much effort. They then marched the convicts to Coal Creek, loaded them onto a train, and sent them to Knoxville. They contacted the labor-friendly governor, John P. Buchanan, and told him what they'd done and why they had done it, and asked for his intervention, believing he would support them. I mean, he's labor-friendly. He's there for the miners, right? Two days later, the governor responded with three Tennessee state militia companies. In their company, they had all the convicts that had been sent to Knoxville, so it's like he's marching them back into town. The miners were enraged. The governor was confronted, and he explained that he had a duty to uphold the law, which is true. They are supposed to uphold the law, but maybe we could negotiate here a little bit. The miners scoffed because he hadn't upheld any laws to protect them. And that night, shots were fired at the stockade. The governor was nearby, and he hightailed it out of there, leaving 107 militiamen to deal with the miners. Good grief. Which we already pointed out, there were 300 armed ones, so you're going to leave a third of that force behind. The miners faced off against the militia with 2,000 men, and the colonel leading the militia quickly conceded. 
months of negotiations and court cases followed, with the final case going to the state Supreme Court and the miners lost. There was a call to arms, and on October 31, 1891, a group of miners burned the stockade at Bryceville and seized the Coal Creek stockade. They burned company buildings and looted. The 300 convicts at the stockades were given food and freed. A couple days later, another stockade was burned. General J. Keller Anderson was sent with a militia, and they built Fort Anderson at the top of Militia Hill that overlooked Coal Creek. Newspapers at the time chose sides, with some calling the miners thieves and outlaws, while other papers called the government inhuman. Fort Anderson came under attack, and Governor Buchanan sent 583 militiamen to restore order. Hundreds of miners were arrested. The uprising had been put down, and many things changed. Governor Buchanan didn't receive his party's nomination to run again, so he switched to third party and lost. His political career was over. The amount of money used to keep up the militia far outweighed the leasing of convict labor, so the practice was done away with. 300 miners were indicted, but no one got serious jail time. And the state legislature laid aside money for the building of Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary in Morgan County, where convicts would mine coal for the state rather than be leased to companies. And there was one ghost story that came from the melee. Miner Richard Drummond was hanged in 1893 from what is today called Drummond's Trestle, a bridge that is located near the junction of Highway 116 and Lower Bryceville Highway. This act was eventually tried as a murder as a militiaman took it upon himself to sentence Drummond to hanging after he'd killed a soldier. People who visit the bridge claim to hear disembodied gasping of breath. No cattle will graze near the bridge and dogs won't cross the bridge. An apparition is sometimes seen hanging from the bridge and a ghost is sometimes seen pacing on the bridge. Amber wrote of her experience visiting the bridge on the Gatlinburg Haunts website. Before we even saw it, we felt a strange sensation as we drove into the area. The air almost seemed electrified, the trees looked dead, and there was absolutely no movement of the leaves. For it being the middle of autumn, it was strange that no leaves were falling. We left our car and walked towards the river, knowing that the bridge would appear eventually. I began to feel nauseous. Kristen said that she was feeling strange too, that the woods were making her dizzy. As we walked, we were wondering where in the world this haunted bridge was. Just as we questioned it, we finally came upon the Drummond Bridge, and both stopped in our tracks. It stood ominously towering over the river, a testament to the history of the area. It was stained, rusted, and overgrown. We decided to avoid walking on the bridge as it no longer seemed sturdy. We sat down on some stumps and just listened for a moment, but all we heard was nothing. Not even birds were singing in the area. After a while, we decided to go back to the car and head out to Sevierville, where our lodging was. As we left, I could have sworn I heard a faint, wait, as we walked away from the area. When I looked back, I saw a golden orb shoot behind a tree, but decided to avoid telling Kristen as she scares pretty easily. Did the spirit of Richard Drummond show himself to me that day? It's hard to say for sure, but the bridge itself and the area surrounding it do have an unexplained energy, one of sadness and life lost too young. Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary wasn't just built to be a jail, since the main purpose was to have convicts work as coal miners. The original structure was made from wood in 1896. Overcrowding was a persistent problem. 
1931, there were 976 men in the prison, which was 300 over capacity. A new structure was necessary, and the wooden structure was replaced by a four-story castle-like stone building made from stone quarried by the convicts. The design of the building was either a cross or upside-down cross based on how you're looking at it. But since the front of the jail makes up the arms, it really does seem to be upside-down. And perhaps that's why it feels as though evil is here. Death was just a part of being at Brushy Mountain. There was violence and murder within the walls. Chronic illness was rampant, with epidemics of typhoid fever and tuberculosis sweeping through, and many convicts were struck with pneumonia and syphilis. These were also convicts, not minors. They weren't trained for this work, and the prison wasn't real strict on keeping things safe, so mining accidents were common. By the time the prison shut down in 2009, 10,000 men had died here. Unruly prisoners were thrown into the hole to get straightened out. The hole stopped being used in 1957 when the D-block was built for the really bad dudes. Something that's troubling about the D-block is that it was built where the prison used to have a death house. And we're not talking about a house, you know, where they put the guys until they're going to get executed. This was a storage room for keeping the bodies of the dead until families came to retrieve their family member or until the body was buried in the on-site pauper cemetery. The mining operations at the mine continued until 1969 when Brushy Mountain was reclassified as primarily maximum security. Prisoners who only needed minimum security were moved to a structure that was, quote-unquote, outside the walls, and they held jobs in the community. The maximum security prison remained a place where the worst of the worst were housed. This was the last stop for many inmates who had become too much to handle for other institutions. Others were men who had committed unspeakable crimes. Conditions weren't just bad for the prisoners. The guards felt unsafe. In 1972, they went on strike and the prison had to close. It stayed closed until 1976 when security improvements were made. Mining operations stopped at the prison, too. Racism was rampant in the prison at this time. White inmates and black inmates fought against each other often. This came to a head in 1982. Seven white inmates managed to capture several guards at knife point and then were able to commandeer their guns. They went to find their black rivals and opened fire on them in their cells, killing two of them. The other two survived because they hid in the corner behind their mattresses. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. One of the most infamous people to be held at the prison was James Earl Ray. Ray was born in March of 1928 in one of our favorite small towns that's haunted, Kelly. Alton, Illinois. Yes. He struggled in life, finally ending up in the army at the end of World War II. He served in Germany, but was eventually discharged for ineptitude. I don't think I've ever heard of somebody being discharged for ineptitude. I haven't either. (laughs) And then his life of crime began. These crimes included armed robbery and mail fraud, and he ended up in Leavenworth for four years in the 1950s. After getting out, he went back to his life of crime and was sentenced to 20 years in prison, which he started serving at the Missouri State Penitentiary. He escaped from there in 1967. Ray made his way to Mexico and settled in Puerto Vallarta in October of 1967. There he pretended to be a pornographic director and got sex workers to work for him. Oh, my word. After no success, Ray went to California and had rhinoplasty to change his appearance. George Wallace was running for president at the time, and Ray was drawn to his segregationist views because Ray was a rampant racist. Martin Luther King Jr. was making his way around the country at this same time, 
spreading his message of peace and equality. Ray hated King, and he put the man in his crosshairs. He traveled to Atlanta in March of 1968 and found the house where King lived and the church where King preached. On March 30, 1968, Ray bought a Remington Model 760 Game Master .306 caliber rifle and a box of 20 cartridges from the Aeromarine Supply Company under the name Harvey Lohmeyer. He had found out that King was going to be in Memphis, Tennessee in early April 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. was standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968, when a single shot from Ray's Remington rifle hit him in the lower right side of his face. King was pronounced dead an hour later at the hospital. The hotel remains as it was the day King died. Sheets still rumpled and cigarettes still in the ashtray and King's car still in the parking lot. Many people claim to feel uncomfortable at the motel and they believe that King's spirit is still here. Ray went on the run, heading to Atlanta, and then he made his way to Canada. Then he was off to England and Portugal and then back to London. When he attempted to go to Brussels, he was arrested at London's Heathrow Airport. He was extradited to Tennessee. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 99 years, and he ended up at Brushy Mountain in March of 1970. Ray set his sights on escaping immediately, and he made several attempts, finally succeeding in 1977. Ray and six other inmates climbed over the wall using a 16-foot ladder made of salvaged pipe. Ray only made it a few miles from the prison walls when he was captured two days later. Guess they found him. He was cold and hungry and because it's surrounded by woods. It's not easy to get away from this place. Right. I kind of likened it to being on Alcatraz. You got to make it across that water if you're going to escape. Same thing here. You got to make it through the Cumberland woods there and stuff. It's just not going to happen. Ray wasn't very liked. He was later stabbed 22 times by three other inmates in 1981. Almost killed him. I don't know how you get stabbed 22 times and you don't die. I guess the shiv wasn't very deep. He left Brushy in 1992 and died at the state facility in Nashville six years later. Another inmate here was politician Byron Lotax Looper. And yes, he changed his middle name to Lotax, as in low taxes. He campaigned on exposing corruption and eventually got into office where he proceeded to hold a press conference and announced that he had discovered $100 million worth of property taxes that hadn't been paid. This was apparently a normal backlog for property taxes at that time of year. Looper became a corrupt politician himself and in 1998 shot his opponent in the head. He was arrested, convicted, and served his time at Brushy until it closed. One of the worst criminals to serve time here was Paul Dennis Reed. He was first convicted and served time when he was only 20 years old. This was for armed robbery and he got 20 years. When he got out, he went on a killing spree. In February of 1997, Reed would become the fast food killer. His first target was a Captain D's where he forced a 16-year-old employee and her 25-year-old manager into the cooler and shot them to death. He then emptied the register. In March, he hit a McDonald's three miles from the Captain D's and killed three people. The thing I never understand with this is I'm like, those people are going to give you the money in the register. Just take the money and go. Why do you have to kill people? Exactly. The next month, he killed two at a Baskin Robbins. Reed was finally caught, convicted, and given seven death sentences. He served at Brushy until it closed and died at another prison from pneumonia in 2013. There was a deer that did time at Brushy, too. This was a young deer that fell off a cliff and into the Brushy yard in the 1970s. The inmates cared for him and named him Geronimo. He liked to chew on unlit cigarettes. I'm sure that's very healthy. Yes. <laughs> when Brushy closed for that brief time in the 1970s, 
Geronimo was moved with the inmates, but he got unruly, not liking the new location. He eventually broke his leg and it needed to be amputated. No one knows what eventually happened to the deer. The jail closed to inmates on June 11, 2009. Jail functions were transferred to the Morgan County Correctional Complex. In 2013, the Brushy Mountain Group formed to save the jail and they worked with Morgan County to reopen the jail to the public. And that officially happened in 2018. Today, the location is open for historic tours and paranormal tours and investigations. The Warden's Table is a restaurant here and offers a variety of southern food. And there's also the Brushy Mountain Distillery, which features frozen head vodka, double barrel whiskey, brimstone, copperhead, and end of the line moonshine. I love that. (laughs) And struggle bus Bloody Mary mix. That end of the line moonshine is available in nine flavors. From farm to still, they use water from the mountain's natural springs to make this one-of-a-kind moonshine and vodka. And then there's those pesky ghosts that still seem to be hanging out here. There were Native Americans on the land before the prison was built, and some believe there is residual energy connected to them here. And then, of course, this was the end of the line for thousands of men who died here. Activities started while the prisoners were still housed at the jail. Visitors to the jail get scratched and sometimes feel nauseous in the building. There are several areas that visitors get to explore when investigating, including A Block, B Block, D Block, the chapel, the auditorium slash hospital, the gymnasium, laundry, cafeteria, courtyard, the hole, and the yard. The cafeteria is said to have many spirits, one who's identified himself as Waterhead. This was an inmate killed with a meat cleaver in the cafeteria. The courtyard is home to a female apparition that is named Bonnie. No one knows why she's here since no women serve time here. The third floor auditorium has a dark entity that has physically attacked people. Paranormal investigators once played the I have a dream speech outside the cell that once housed James Earl Ray, and they captured a voice saying, hush. The Tennessee Wraith Chasers visited during season four on their show Ghost Asylum. A former inmate told the team that the chapel was one of the most dangerous places on site. Now, you would think that would be the safest place. One would imagine. One of the members of the team is named Doogie. And right as he walked into the chapel, he was carrying an ovelus. It said beast. And then later, hell came over it. And this is in a chapel. Not good. The inmate also told them about Jack Jett, an inmate who was a little person that was stabbed in the neck and then 18 more times at the prison. So I don't know where all of those stab wounds took place, but I know the one that really got him was in the neck. Later, a couple team members seemed to catch some K2 energy at a lower level, and they wondered if they had a kid there. If everything is honest about this show, they were all separate from each other. So you've got a couple that are interviewing this inmate, telling them about this Jack Jet, who was a little person, and then you have these other two teammates who are catching this energy that's at a lower level. So they're thinking, why would there be a kid here at the jail? So could this have been him? Doogie went down to solitary confinement and banged on a cell door and asked if anyone was still there. He got Jack and me over the ovelus. He was not in on this interview either. And this comes over the equipment. So it's like, is that Jack Jet again? They heard an audible growl in the cell blocks. Porter was in maximum security and the temperature went from extremes of 72 to 100 degrees and it was just bouncing back and forth. It was very, very strange. The K2 meter got several hits and the periscope, which is a type of K2 meter, I think you would really like this, Kelly. It has these vertical rods that light up from red to green across it. 
There's like, I don't know, seven or eight of them and the color just kind of goes across it. This got hits and went from red to green when asked to do that. The group built something they called a wraith fog trap and hoped to get an apparition to materialize with it. This entailed lasers, batteries, a dehumidifier, voltmeter, a fog machine, and something called a Jacob's Ladder. This was supposed to give energy to the spirit, and the fog was to help see it. When they reviewed the video later, it was pretty amazing, Kelly. There's no doubt that they caught something walking through the fog. It's not just, you know, when fog is swirling and stuff. I mean, you could definitely see that there was at least the lower torso of a human being walking through that. Interesting. And they thought that it looked like it was a littler person. So it possibly could have been Jack Jet. I couldn't tell sizing based on the image that I was looking at. Right. I don't know. I mean, you know, you can fake things and stuff, but that seemed pretty legit because I even myself went, oh, my gosh, when I saw it. Love new inventions like that. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting device that they had. They set it up in a circle and they had so many things going on. But I, I love it when people try all these different experiments to see if you can get something to work. Absolutely. Other hauntings connected to Jet include an area where there were phones. Jet was on the phone when he was attacked. The phone here has been seen levitating off the hook and then being returned to it. There are cold spots felt here and a feeling of dread. Objects in the chapel have been seen floating across the room. Floating orbs have been seen in the hole in harsh colors like purple and red. Disembodied footsteps and whispers are heard. And as we mentioned earlier, Keisha has been here. Discovery Plus's Conjuring Keisha visited the prison in the summer of 2022. And yes, we have watched a few of those. I think we made it through two or three of them. Comedian and actress Whitney Cummings joined singer Keisha for an investigation at the prison, and it didn't disappoint, according to what we saw on the show. Whitney had her wrist squeezed really hard before the women even entered the jail. And it was enough that she felt like she wanted to leave, but then she was interested to see if it would happen again. They talked to a former correctional officer from the jail named Debbie Williams. She worked at the prison from 1980 to 2009. Wow. I was like, wow, she worked there a long time. Williams said that there was violence in the prison daily. Her experiences included being told audibly to get out by something she couldn't see. She told Keisha and Whitney that they believe there are two demons in the prison. This was backed up by the owners of the prison, Jamie Brock and her sister Courtney. The property has been in their family since the 1890s. I think they said their great-great-grandfather had owned the property and he, I don't know if he leased it or sold it to the state to put the prison there because somehow they ended up with the keys again. So I'm thinking it was kind of a leased thing or something. Jamie said that in cell block D, they have seen apparitions, been touched, things get slammed, and they've heard growls and disembodied voices. A woman once recited the Lord's Prayer, and the woman said her back was burning and there were three red claw marks down her back. The sister then mentioned their weird entity here that is nicknamed the Creeper. They call it that because they were using an SLS camera and captured the entity crawling along the floor and then up the wall. On day two, Whitney and Keisha brought in a demonologist with them. A REM pod in the hospital went off for a sustained period of time, and Whitney went to hang out in the area by herself. Shortly after getting in the room, she heard something outside of it. Whitney asked the spirit about gender, and the REM pod went off when she asked if it was a woman. Later, it indicated that it was transgender and had wanted to appear as a woman. Now, this got really emotional during this scene. I don't know if this was legit 
The thing for me is, if you think you're dealing with something that is an unhuman entity, I don't think it has a gender. So I'm wondering if that's why we were getting something that wasn't real clear on what kind of gender we're working with, or if it was trying to be disingenuous, hiding itself, lying. I don't know. Later, the two women used the SLS camera in here and caught a figure hanging out just behind Whitney on the stairs. And then it seemed to climb up the wall. And they were pretty sure this was the creeper. The show ended with Keisha fleeing cell block D because they thought they were interacting with a demon, which we didn't understand because they had a demonologist there. And isn't that what they were looking for? I'm like, why do you have a demonologist there? He's not there to help protect you with stuff or come in and do something. He was just watching off camera. I'm like, shouldn't have he been in the room with you and... Yeah, I don't know. Thrown some holy water or something? <laughs> I don't know. I just was like, if you're going into a place and you're looking to interact with something and it starts interacting with you and then you run out and you're like, I'm done, I'm done. And then you, you're like, we're just going to go get some drinks. I'm like, how <laughs> legit are you? I don't know. I feel like the paranormal field lately has been doing itself a lot of harm. I agree. Or with that. maybe I should say the entertainment industry is doing the paranormal field a lot of harm. Right. That's that's a more accurate description. Like you and I just got done with the 28 Days Haunted on Netflix. If you guys are into mockumentaries, you might enjoy it, even though this isn't supposed to be a mockumentary. It's supposed to be like the real deal. Kelly and I made it through all six episodes, but I have to say the paranormal field based on that took about a million steps backward. It was hokey, stupid, and a complete joke. But it was hilarious if you went with it along the lines of it being mocking or something and over the top and that kind of thing. The creeper isn't the only weird entity here, though, Kelly. And that SLS, it did look very creepy because there was something going up that wall. There are some who've claimed to see a cloven hoofed figure. The description matches that of the goat man, which I guess goes with the fact that they think there's something demonic here. Now, Kelsey, who's one of our listeners that suggested this location, actually visited it and had a couple of experiences she shared. I actually visited there a few years ago and I was at the whipping post and my mom made a sarcastic comment saying that I'd be there all the time. <laughs> I her mom's like, they'd be whipping you all the time. But this isn't funny. She came home to whip marks on her back. So I asked her a little bit further about that because that's all she said. And I'm like, um, well, what? like, what did they look like? Was it painful? Did you feel them at the time? I didn't feel any pain at all, which was weird. And they lasted for a few days. Wow. She also went into the hole and I sat there for a few minutes while my mom was in another cell and it was just me and her in there. No other visitors that day. And, and all of a sudden I hear a noise on the wall in my cell and I ask if anyone is there. And all of a sudden I feel a tap on my shoulder. So I ask, did you just touch me? Then immediately after, I hear a man's voice say, yes. I was like, whoa. Wow. Many people claim to hear the cries of those who were brutally beaten, sometimes to death at that whipping post. I didn't ask if she was sensitive or anything, if that's why all of a sudden she picked up those marks. I'm not sure. I mean, that's pretty shocking that they lasted for three days. Yeah. I mean, those are some pretty intense scratches or whatever, however it looked on her. There seems to be a lot of activity at the prison, which is pretty typical of these tough prisons. This one has one of the highest death counts of any prison. Is Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary haunted? That, that is for you to decide. decide. Well, I know we have a lot of people that are big fans of it and have visited there, and it's a really cool-looking jail, and the sisters are still running it that have the keys to it, so... 
if nothing else, it looks like a good place to go and have a meal and a drink. <laughs> I'd like to go investigate. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get a comment over on YouTube from T-Bolt. He was commenting under our haunted Hannibal video. And he had said that Hannibal is incredibly haunted and said, when I was a boy, we mostly had minor poltergeist activity. Things disappearing, we'd be tearing the house apart, looking for it and finding it right where we had left it in plain sight. Oh, so it definitely felt like there was something that would grab their stuff and then then things changed for me. I was asleep facing the wall and woke to my cat making a noise staring behind me at the corner of the room. I turned around and there was a full figure apparition of a Revolutionary War soldier in full kit. Wow. When it saw me, it turned and walked through my closet door. I was like, oh my gosh. Tracing my genealogy, I have a direct ancestor that fought for the new United States and a unit from Virginia. I think that's who I saw, and he's my guardian angel. I'll save other things for another time. So he had lots of experiences. Very cool. Looking forward to hearing more. want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Elizabeth Mottman. We're going to be putting you into a chest tomb. And Marilee Owens, you're going in a garden crypt, and in three months, you're going to be getting your HGB logo mug, and if you stick around for a year, an HGB logo t-shirt. And we hope you ladies are enjoying those Redux episodes from the $5 and above level. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really could not produce this show without you guys. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Rogers took 90 minutes of flying lessons from Orville. Who names their child Orville? Do you have popcorn in your mouth? (laughs) You just can't say it. It does sound like it, doesn't it? Orville Redenbacher. Where did that old guy, whatever happened to him? Probably died, huh? I would imagine. (laughs) Good grief. Rogers took 90 minutes of flying lessons from Orville. God, I'm not going to be able to say it. Oh, my. Orville. Orville. With epidemics of typhoid fever and tuberculosis sweeping through. And many convicts were stuck. They were stuck with they pneumonia. They were stuck with pneumonia. Stuck them like a safety pin. <laughs> Pop <laughs> so that guy. Give right him now. some syphilis. The cafeteria is said to have many spirits. One who's identified himself as Waterhead. This was an inmate killed with a meat cleaver in the cafeteria. I would call him Meathead, not Waterhead. Oh, Kelly. <laughs>